Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I'm your host, Elaine miller Karras. You can also watch this broadcast on Resiliency Within's YouTube channel. And if you want to contact me, you can reach me at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. I would like to welcome my guest today, Brooklyn Rainey. She holds an MA from NYU and is currently completing a doctorate in education at the University of Pennsylvania. Congratulations on that. That's a very good university, Brooklyn, I happen to know. Um, She's an experienced teacher, coach, and speaker. She serves as a consultant for schools, camps, and youth-serving organizations around the world. She actually just told me she's actually helping some Girl Scout leaders in Shanghai right now, and I want to learn more about that. And today we're going to talk about her book and the organization she founded, and they have the same name. It's called One Trusted Adult, which, by the way, I love that. I love the way you've crafted the title of your organization and your book. So Brooklyn will address why it is essential that all adults in contact with young people need to know her ABCs of being a trusted adult, which includes being accessible, boundaried, and caring. So welcome, um, Brooklyn. I'm so glad you're here with me today. And she's in New Hampshire. I'm in California. So even this is the, the incredible you know, uh, brilliance of radio is that we can talk together and feel like we're in the same room together. So um, what's on your mind today as we get started? Well, first gratitude. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the good work that you do. Um, And thank you for saying that, that one trusted adult. I I appreciate you. Um, That was not hard to come to. It's been my mission for a long time and uh, excited to talk to you about it today. What's on my mind? Yes. What's on your mind? What's on my mind right now, honestly, is is burnout, is teacher, parent, youth-serving professional burnout and fatigue. They are tired, and I am worried. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we've certainly heard the same thing on our show. We've, we have had a number of people that work with schools, and it was hard before the pandemic, mm-hmm. but I think the pandemic for many um, people sent them over the edge. And now, you know, here's many people, of course, are back in school now, although sometimes, you know, I hear that, oh, they've had a COVID outbreak, so they're back online. And I think it's just been, it's kind of been erratic. Um, Erratic is a good word. It's it's been erratic, hasn't it? The routine is gone. It is every day is a different day. Um, And as they try to focus on connection and community, everything feels like it's testing that and pushing back and shooting up obstacles everywhere for them to be able to do that. And they're trying to take care of themselves. They're trying to take care of their families. They're trying to take care of each other. And there's not much left in the tank to show up for young people except to deliver curriculum, which we know isn't always effective without pouring into the community and the connection piece. Well, and also we know that if teachers are traumatized, they affect um, children's um, abilities to learn because it actually affects their nervous system. So, I mean, the work that you're doing in, in helping the, the um, teachers and, and the administrators and, and, and parents and all that, I want to hear more about it, but, you know, I always like to ask to start out with about here you are 
clearly very passionate about this work, uh, Brooklyn. We've been talking before the show started. And so what was it about your lived experience that um, led you to to work with, with um, to write One Trusted Adult yeah. and to work in this arena? I think looking back on my childhood, I grew up in a small town in Ontario, Canada, and I was surrounded by many trusted adults. So the concept of one, it was like... <laughs> No way that I have grandparents down this block, grandparents the other block, aunts, uncles, coaches, neighbors, lifeguards, the school secretary. Like if I had to make a list of the trusted adults who showed up for me, it would be lengthy. And they are incredible, incredible human beings who I felt cared about me, were invested in my success, invested in my development, really were role models. Um, And then I had the amazing fortune of um, being a decently good ice hockey goalie (laughs) from Canada. And I went off to boarding school in Indiana, actually, where, again, I was surrounded by incredible trusted adults. And it wasn't until I entered into working in schools um, in many different capacities and working with students that I realized not every child in the U.S. or Canada could say the same, not even close. And that struck me and that was hard for me. And so I worked really hard to be that trusted adult for so many. And then it was actually in an auditorium, in a school auditorium, when I was a dean of students at a boarding school in New Hampshire. And in one month, we had three prevention programs. You know them well, like the bullying prevention program, the substance abuse prevention program, and a suicide prevention program. And every single one ended with Make sure you reach out and find a trusted adult. Talk to a trusted adult. And this term came up so often in such a short period of time that it really like struck me between the eyes. And I just started asking, like, you know, what does that really mean through the eyes of the adults working with young people and through the eyes of the young people? Like, are they looking around this auditorium and saying, I'm surrounded by trusted adults? Do they see us that way? And do the adults who are showing up to the building every day step into that role? Do they step up to the plate in that way? Are they there to teach chemistry and, you know, coach basketball? Or are they believing that part of their role in showing up for young people is to be that trusted adult? And when I couldn't find sort of a, a, you know, universal definition or a program to help schools ensure that young people had that trusted adult at home and at school, I, I set out to to create it, just to begin researching for my own school and my own work. But then it just grew and grew and grew. And you see where I am today working with all kinds of schools and youth serving organizations to um, keep this a primary focus of their work all year long. Well, and even when you talked about, you know, what first inspired you about these three different programs, I'm very important programs, but yet siloed, right? Oh, this is for this, and this is for this, and this is for this, when really the overarching um, theme that I just heard from you was that, well, if we have one trusted adult, there may not be bullying, there may not be suicide attempts. Um, it may change the whole trajectory of how children are supported. That is my strong belief that if we go upstream away from these behaviors that most scare us and our biggest worries for youth, if we go upstream, all the protective factors are the same. And one of those protective factors is a trusted adult. Absolutely. And I know that there's work being done by Dr. Christina Bethel at John Hopkins that actually is total in alignment in what you're saying. So now we even have neuroscience that's saying that it's not only our belief, which of course is very important, but it's wonderful that we're hearing that, oh, and yes, it means that it can help children feel more protected and, um, and also safer in whatever environment they're in. Because we know that many children grow up in homes 
that are have violence or there's so much you know ups and downs in the the child's life that to have a person who's involved with them either in you know school programs or out of school programs i mean girl scouts is something that is you know an adjunct to schools that that what, what a difference that could make if the trusted adults knew your ABCs, which I want to, I want to get into more, of course. So can you explain the concept of one um, trusted adult in a little bit more detail? Sure. Well, the research shows that when a young person can name a trusted adult at home and at school or in whatever spaces they spend a lot of time, which, so I assume home and school, but there are other spaces, they're less likely to suffer from depression. They are less likely to abuse substance and they're less likely to bully or be bullied. And where I like to spin that conversation to is they are more likely then to, and there's research that shows this, more likely to remain calm in the face of challenges, which is something you and I talked about in the pre-show, develop a strong sense of resiliency, handle stress. They're more likely to engage in school activities and activities after school, more likely to volunteer in their communities. And I think so important to schools is they're more likely to be available for learning that when they have that trusted adult, they can show up available to learn. And so we've taken that research to say, this this shows why it's so important and we wanna talk to everyone about that, but then how do we do it? And how do we create specific strategies and tools? And what we found in interviewing hundreds and hundreds of people across the continent is that trusted adults who show up for young people show up with these three really important qualities, and that's being accessible, being boundaried, and being caring. And we always show them in our trainings as three circles that that link. So accessible overlaps with boundaries and caring overlaps with boundaries because the boundaries really centers it um, and keeps it sustainable and protects us from burnout. Well, and especially when you're in your know, teacher, I mean, you can have so many children that need you. Is that how do you, you know, I, I guess the question I always have, well, how do you do that? You have all these kids and you see all these needs and you talked about you're concerned about the burnout you're seeing. Yes. And even when you were, as you were talking, I'm going, so many teachers have shared with me how hard it was to be um, on, on Zoom or whatever platform they were using. Because so many of those um, conversations when they were being that one trusted adult happened after the, the uh, chemistry, um, you know, uh, the chemistry class was over and they would come and say, well, you know, something's happening. And those informal conversations um, were, I think were impacted. I mean, I don't know if you can, you know, touch upon that. What's been your experience with that during the pandemic? Yeah, we always say like the real work is in the fringes of the work that we're assigned. Yeah, to. The fr- that's a lot. <laughs> I love the way you say that. Yes. Um, it is in the conversations in passing between classes or before practice or after practice, like all of the really most important work is in those moments and great trusted adults and great coaches and great teachers and great parents recognize that and make time for that and great organizations and great schools honor that and understand that. So we've been, there's one study out of the university of Rochester that shows young people at school They interviewed over 10,000 students. I think it was across 40 or 50 schools. And it showed on the low end, you know, only 6% of students in a school could name a trusted adult at school. And on the high end, I know, take your breath away kind of stuff. And on the high end, I think it was about 53%. But of that, what's really interesting is that that's not every kid naming a different adult. We find that within that, the same adults get named over and over. And those adults are the counselors and the charismatic. 
Well, you know, I, I've noticed something else and I, I'm curious, Brooklyn, if you found this, when I would be working in school, sometimes the kids would tell me it was the school janitor. Oh yeah. But they would, they would go up to the school janitor and they, and that school janitor always would make time yes. for those kids. And yeah. so I, I think it's not necessarily someone who's in a designated role. I call those natural leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you would call them trusted adults, yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. That, um, that also help to support, um, children. The the possibilities are everywhere. It could be the interaction you have with the barber or the server at a restaurant. I mean, these interactions can be two minutes. They can be two years. They can be lifetimes. Um, But these interactions of, we talk about, you can either ignore the moment, you can embrace the moment, or you can exploit the moment. And we can talk about boundaries in a little bit. The big capital letter B boundaries of neglect and abuse and the exploitation but there's a lot of adults missing these moments or ignoring these moments where they have to make a young person feel seen, valued, important, named. And so we're trying to give skills and strategies for pushing people into that opportunity to embrace embrace the engagement, embrace the relationship. So I'm, I'm curious too. So like when you're, you're one trusted adult and you go in with your program to a school and so the administrators say, oh, we want you to come in and you start talking to people about this. And you just give that statistic. Mm-hmm. Have you done um, post evaluations to see if you coming in has is making an impact of people maybe changing their mindset yeah. about how to reach out to children? I'd love to hear more about that. I appreciate the question because I'm so excited to t- <laughs> <laughs> to tell me the results of it. Yes, yes, please. We have created something called Operation OTA, and I don't have the final statistics for you, but anecdotally, we are definitely seeing what you're talking about, which is an increase in young people being able to name a trusted adult and spreading out the number of adults that they name so that adults aren't looking or educators aren't looking at this as one more thing to do, right? When the PD person comes in, it's like, oh, one more thing, one more thing they're asking me to do. It's not that. It's a it's a little tiny shift of a mindset to open yourself up to the possibility of being a trusted adult for young people and then realizing actually they'll show up better behaved and more available to learning to your content, to your class if you invest in this way. So Operation OTA does two things. Well, three things actually. One is it engages adults and it assesses from the adult lens of put a star next to a young person or your name next to a young person's picture who you believe you do show up and you do have a connection for. And there's four questions that you answer to determine whether or not you might be somebody that this person trusts. Um, And so that's the first assessment plus some professional development training on the ABCs and the universal youth needs, et cetera. And then it actually works with young people too. There's lesson plans for middle school through high school on what a trusted adult looks like and why I should even consider investing in a relationship with a teacher or a coach. Why does it matter, right? Dr. Jean Rhodes, her work on mentorship is incredible. And she says, we need to stock the pond and we need to teach them to fish, that this can't be one-sided. We can't tell the young people, go find trusted adults. And the adults are like, what are you talking about? We can't train the adults. And where are they? Another thing is, of course, you know, I'm an, as you may know, I'm an old trauma therapist and sometimes people that were, you know, pretended to be trusted adults were not trusted adults. So is there some kind of training for the kids about how to, um, how to be aware of warning signals that maybe someone is asking them to do things that are not in that trusted adult realm? Absolutely. 
We So that's part of the ABCs model. Everything that we develop for adults, we use language that can easily be translated to young people. I think it's so important that we use the same words, accessible, boundaried, and caring. When we talk about the boundaries with young people, we talk about all the things that you're talking about. Like how, does someone respect my time, my body, my um, belongings, my thoughts, my ideas, and we break down exactly what that means. We don't go fully into child abuse protection as there's incredible organizations out there like Darkness to Light or the Monique Burr Foundation that are doing unbelievable work. Mm-hmm. So we are upstream a little bit from that where we're just trying to – we would never talk about trust and connection without the boundary and the protection and the safety piece, never talk about them separately. Well, I'm really glad that you have boundary as actually one of the concepts. And it's not only for the for the trusted adult, but for the children. So then they know that they can say, no, that's not okay for me. Exactly. And so, because I think part of being children learning is also learning to say no, which can be very hard for kids because adults are more powerful. So then that seems to be very integral in what we would teach them. That is exactly it. And we have found this model that works. I think that you'll you'll like it. It's we break down boundaries because there's there's that word can get used in a lot of different spaces from the most serious to just the idea of like saying no. Um, or even like self-care practices, we hear it often. So we talk about brick wall boundaries, and those are the non-negotiables, the law. We talk about chain link fence boundaries, and those are, you know, maybe your parents can walk through the gate in that fence. Um but your teacher can't. Like there's different relationships you have with adults based on whether it's formal or informal, if it's at home or if it's at school. And then we talk about baby gate boundaries, which is where we negotiate trust. Like um, that that gate can move based on how safe you feel when you're vulnerable with that person. And, and some days you could trust a lot and you can also pull that back, that that's something you use your emotional intelligence uh, and you can adjust. And then the final is the invisible fence. And I love the invisible fence because it's all the ways we set up tiny boundaries or invisible boundaries within our schools and organizations, telling young people what is celebrated here, what is popular here, what's important here, um, what we elevate. And, and you know, our bulletin board send a message about that and our school announcements send a message about that and who we highlight. And so we talk about um, hidden culture and that being a boundary we need to assess as well because that takes us into, you know, about gender, about race, about ability. It gets us into all kinds of space about what is celebrated here and um, what messages I'm receiving about what it means to be a good a good human or, or to succeed. Well, the other thing that, that strikes me as you're talking, I was thinking that, well, we had this in every school um, and this was so part of the culture. I'm thinking about how it ripples to um, children, let's say, you know, date rapes and things that happen, bullying, Right. Because it almost sounds to me so foundational that if those um, tenets that you're talking about are so integrated by the school, by the teachers, the administration, and also by the parents, I would think is also because parents can be trusted, but they can sometimes not be trusted adults. And but also with the kids, the kids have, a, 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 I would think, a discernment process that they're learning at an early age mm-hmm. of how to determine who are the trusted people in their lives, not just the adults, but when they have their peer-to-peer reactions. I mean, have you seen that ripple down? I mean, I'm just kind of, my brain is firing and so excited, Brooklyn, about what you're doing. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. I think what you're, I mean, we see this golden thread from kindergarten through 12th grade and beyond. So I mostly work K-12, but um, we see the need for this work in higher ed as well. But 
that's <laughs> that's another project for another time in my life. Um, but in kindergarten, in first grade, those are the first adults outside of the home that a young person is choosing to trust, right? It's the first opportunity that an adult has to show a young person you can trust someone beyond uh, your at-home adults. And those young elementary teachers are also often named still by high schoolers and middle schoolers as their trusted adults. Like if I would still go back to that person. Um, And I think a really important distinction is trusted adult, the term often gets used in response to the things that you just talked about, right? When there's a concern, go to a trusted adult. When you have a worry, go to a trusted adult. When you have a question, go to a trusted adult. But that trust has to be built so much sooner. And there's other ways that trusted adults can work to prevent those things before they're the trusted adult on the response side, right? So as a dean of students, I spent all my time putting out fires and oh, said, I, can I imagine. just <laughs> want to be on the proactive side. I want to be proactive. I want to create curriculum. I want to run programs to get kids excited about something so that they're not seeking this, this, or this, or this, or this, or this. But I'm thinking too, as you're talking about it, it's so empowering for children that that is, you know, of course, another one of those golden threads that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. because if they can make that discernment and also then the, the, the teachers are coming to them as well. I was, what a wonderful, you know, it's like um, coming back and forth with each other because it's a, it's then becomes a system that is working in synchronicity because I, I was also thinking that I was thinking, gosh, if I was a teacher and I was thinking, oh, I'm so busy, I'm burned out. And you came in and started talking to me about a trusted adult. I could say, oh my gosh, I need to be more of a trusted adult. I'm so, you know, I'm so into like, I have to get the ABCs done, right? Then all of a sudden this little person came up to me. I said, well, you know, you can come and talk to me later. I mean, I know that happens, yes. but I would think that there's also something, and I'm not to say that you're doing something to create shame in teachers, no. but that it's an awareness, almost an awareness practice and of I, what you do matters. I come from the work. I, I, yes. I am, I'm a practitioner and I know that. And so there were often times I shuffled students along, you know, because I had to get to this meeting or this adult thing. And, and it, you know, laying at night and reflecting on my day or journaling, it's like, oh, my goodness, that was like algebra is not the destination. Algebra is the avenue to <laughs> yes the relationship and to the real bigger <laughs> Or maybe not. I can still remember my algebra teacher. Her name was Sister Yezu Du Cristo, and she was so scary. I didn't do very well in algebra, Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. Join the club. No. So anyway, I just, all of a sudden you sparked a memory, but I remember Mrs. Placer. She was my fifth grade teacher and she was beloved by all the children. Mm-hmm. And she had this way of just, you know, almost I can just see her right now. I'm sure she's long gone, that she would just embrace children in the way she spoke to them. Mm-hmm. She had that talent. Do you know what it was about the way she spoke? Well, I think, you know, she also um, taught us how to sing. And so we would have these, um, and I like singing. So we would have um, choir, and I think she's probably had to sing more than she was supposed to, because she <laughs> likes singing a lot. So I think that was part of it. Um, but she just had a presence of kindness. Mm-hmm. And also, I would say compassion. Mm-hmm. And so, and I just felt that from her. It wasn't necessarily anything that I can say, oh, I kind of remember a moment or anything. It was what she conveyed in how she treated others. And that was also how she treated the parents. It wasn't only the children because my mother was from another country. So she had a very thick accent. Mm-hmm. And I always, I always like had my radar up to see if they would, you know, treat her with respect. Yeah. And of course she did. 
um, she actually ended up coming to the, my mother ended up being a teacher at the school. She taught Spanish. Um, and so I could also see that close up front, um, those kinds of relationships. Yeah. That's incredible. I love that story. So there yeah. was a stra- you mean the, the treating of all people with that respect and compassion that you mentioned? Well, I think so. And I, you know, when I think about, I grew up, um, in a, in a community, um, was a was Catholic and um but there were lots of trusted adults I mean so I know that there we know that there are some horrible priests out there that did terrible things but I think the majority of us had people within the community that were actually lovely and we had you know there were nuns there were people that worked at the schools there were people that I knew that I could go to and that I trusted Mm -hmm. and I know that wasn't everyone's experience but I'm I'm wondering also if that discernment was more entrenched if we could also prevent as we said before, the abuse that sometimes happened has happened, that then the children and the parents would have been better equipped, that not just trust someone because of their role um, as a higher administrator, which I would think that would be so important part of what you do. Yes. Oh my goodness, it's almost time for our break, Brooklyn. I, I, you know, I don't think we're going to get to all of our questions. I'm obviously going to have to have you on again. Yes. Um, <laughs> We're, we're just halfway through like the first couple of questions we prepared, yes. but we're going to take a short break um, and then we'll come back uh, listeners. And oh my goodness, I think if you're excited as I am, I want to hear more about the program and the ABCs and, and really talk a little bit more and do a deeper dive in, you know, how also we could bring this to our communities. If people are listening, going, we need this. How do we get this to our community so that our, our schools can benefit from the work that you're doing? Um, in one trusted adult. So we will be back in just um, uh, just a couple minutes and we will continue our conversation with Brooklyn Rainey. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. 
To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Brooklyn, Brooklyn Rainey, and she's talking about her book, One Trusted Adult. And also we're talking about the program, One Trusted Adult, that's being integrated in schools um, across America and maybe Canada too, um, since you've originated from Canada. So we're going to continue our discussion. And I'm going to just talk a little bit more about um, this question. Why does everyone need to have a trusted adult or to be that trusted adult? That is the question. That's right? the question. All right. So many preventative factors that can occur, protective factors that occur when we have that relationship. And if you, I mean, let's let's take a walk back, Elaine. Would you say that anyone showed up for you? And, and could you? Well, describe I, ha- yeah, I have to say that you know my my family life was a bit tumultuous. My mom, my mom sometimes was erratic in her behaviors. I would say she probably had a mental health condition. And my dad, um, he recovered from alcoholism, but he was an alcoholic. So you can imagine in the childhood that I had, and I was the oldest kid. So there was a lot of, you know, it was a tumultuous life. And I often, you know, can think of myself kind of protecting my younger siblings when things would happen in the household. But I got to go to my grandma's house. And my grandmother was from El Salvador. Her name was Eva Pineda. And she uh, actually ended up marrying an American, Macaulay, when she came from El Salvador, her second husband. Um, and she was lovely. We, I would, we would call her Abuelita Linda. So it's the sweet, um, beautiful grandmother. And I really can just think of her beautiful brown eyes. And she had this way of, um, of just um, imbuing in us that we were so important and so loved. And so when I think about her, I really do think she was one of the saviors of my childhood. Um, and I, when I, um, when I did her eulogy um, at her, you know, her funeral, I went and asked this, my siblings about, you know, their recollections of her, you know, and almost every single one felt that she was their favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that is a talent for a grandparent, right? To think that you are her favorite. Grandma Eva did it well. Yes, yes. she did that so well. And I actually have a, I have a, I have a picture of her. This is her as a very young woman. She was very beautiful. beautiful. Um, and I have some other picture that's harder for me to grab of her as an elderly person. But she was just the most loving person and kind and compassionate. So those qualities that we've been talking about, that she was certainly that for me. And um, those people that may be listening to the show that have listened to other broadcasts, I often bring her in because oftentimes when I'm talking to people about the resources in their life and what's helped them get through difficult experiences, Mm -hmm. they will bring up a grandparent or some, as you say, now I have a new term, or some trusted adult um, that really save them during a tumultuous childhood. So I, I love that you asked me that question. So, so tell me more. So, yeah, so my grandmother we, was one of those trusted adults. Yes, we, I love that story. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. And can you believe this is the work I get to do to ask people? Oh, I mean, isn't that lovely that, I mean, because what you're doing is you're, you're accessing the gratitudes we have in our life. And you know that we have brain circuitry. Yes. That ha- that are laid down in our brain that recognizes gratitude. So that our parts of our brain are going woohoo! Thank you, yeah. Brooklyn. I'm, we say I have a great memory. At the end of our training, no matter like if you take away nothing else, go back and thank <laughs> the person who showed up for you. 
because that puts fuel in their tank to keep showing up. If they have passed, reach out to their children, you know, journal about it yourself because it does activate something in us and reminds us who showed up for us and how we want to show up for other people. Well, and if I can just kind of integrate, because it's hard for me not to. So in the model that, you know, I've created community resiliency model, we have talked a lot in these, uh, my shows about interceptive awareness. Mm-hmm. And that's our capacity to sense our well-being. Mm-hmm. Also to sense, you know, when we're in distress, like if we go outside and it's too cold, we'd put a, we'd put a, it would cause an action of putting on a jacket. Well, and the same thing is true. So when you tell me about when I just remembered my grandma, it wasn't just a thought. It was not only just a feeling, but it was a sensation. Mm-hmm. And that sensation is like she was here presently with me right now. Mm-hmm. And that sensory awareness to it for, for what we do in the world in, in CRIM, the community resiliency model, is when we sense it, it's like saving it to the hard drive of our nervous system. Yeah. So it actually embeds our well-being in a practiced awareness, it's an awareness practice Mm -hmm. that actually helps to even deepen it. So I'm just adding that. I can't wait till you learn more about what we do because I I can't either. I just broke that down. It's energy between the two. Yes. Interceptive awareness. Yes. Interceptive awareness. Yeah. Example of the jacket. So I'm feeling really good right now. So thank you for being on the show today. You're welcome. (laughs) So, so tell, tell us more. Come on, tell us more. I would imagine. Well, one thing I want to say is that you and I can call up good memories, right? Of good, of amazing trusted adults who showed up for us. And when I run this exercise with, let's say educators, any youth serving professionals, but I'm in schools a lot, there's typically 30 to 40% of people who cannot name someone. And for me, I look at them and I say, you are superheroes because you're showing up for kids in a way that no one showed up for you. I have a model. People poured into me. I show up for kids in the way that I was shown up for. And there's a lot of educators doing this who didn't have a model. And that's, again, why we're pushing to create these really specific strategies and tools. And I, you know, I would guess that your grandmother hit for you what we call the basics. Like we talk about getting back to the basics and that's belonging and membership. She helps you create some sense of belonging and membership. Ability to contribute. She might have asked you to help in some way, offer your skills. We would make lemonade together. Yes, there it is. We would pick the lemons from the backyard and make lemonade together. Yes. That's it. Uh, Safety and structure, independence and control, competence and mastery, and then self-awareness and a greater connection to community. That those are the things when I, we we talk about youth serving spaces like fish tanks. And that, you know, these are things, it's like the water, right? The, the fish are swimming around and they're not like, how's the water? Warm. They don't, they're just in the water, right? Like we are in the air. We are in the, we're just living in a space. Those are the things that we're trying to make sure our fish tank achieves. So the way that you might clean the fish tank or assess the, I don't know, the pH levels or the decorations or whatever, we want to assess the basics in our spaces. How am I as a trusted adult? providing an opportunity for young people to feel a sense of belonging or to feel a sense of contribution or to feel a sense of safety and security. Well, and those those are just so important. I mean, to me, you're talking about foundational pillars of if every child had that, how that, you know, might be different. And also I'm thinking about the 30% that you're talking to that don't have it. Cause I mean, I imagine there can be moments where people can get very upset with that realization um, I'm thinking about a guest I had on my show um, um, yesterday, and she'd had a, really what sounded like a torturous childhood, and yet she has created meaning and purpose. And I think I just wanted to bring that in. Meaning and purpose can also be what we didn't have. 
because as you say, they're now contributing to children. And I've seen where meaning and purpose can really shift that tragedies of childhood into the wellsprings of well-being in the present moment. And how wonderful is that, that you can also remind people that that is also, that I always say, well, what else is true? What else yeah. is true is that you're doing this. I mean, I, in fact, I just had someone contact me and said, Elaine, do you have good handwriting? And I said, well, yeah. She goes, well, I'm thinking about getting a tattoo about what you always say. And so she actually wanted me to write out my what else is true to Whoa. tattoo on her arm. I'm going, oh my, <laughs> no one's ever said that to me before. <laughs> That's the next level. Thinking, That's got to well, be like an Olympic well, gold medal or something. such a sweet thing that she <laughs> was saying. But I guess what I'm saying is that I think that when we bring in that wellspring of gratitudes and reminders of that, yes, we may have had trauma or hardship, but there's also something true about us because sometimes that can get shrouded by the living of life. And when I'm hearing you talk, Brooklyn, I think that you're taking that shroud off for people that didn't get what they needed to start creating that in the present moment, which to me is how we create a better world that maybe a world that wouldn't have war, the world that would have more greater peace. I mean, I, I know that sometimes I just got, go, Oh, Lane, you're always thinking up there, but how do we change that? If not by this in a foundational pillar of life, right? Exactly. Exactly. I, I'm up there with you. And uh, okay. Well, on, Hey, <laughs> someone on a show asked me, you know, well, what's a realistic number of kids who could name a trusted adult at school? And I said, 100%. And Well, but realistically, what are you aiming for? And I said, 100%. 100%. I am with you, girl. Okay. Everything else is failure. Yeah. No. And so, I mean, I think it's so possible. And so, um, so let's talk a little bit more about this. So if you're going to, how does the school, um, how do they find you? How do you get, um, I mean, I would love to see you in every single school with these ideas. So if, if we were going to say, okay, we have a new goal here together. Maybe you already had it. A hundred percent of schools. 100%. <laughs> okay. <laughs> how in. do we get it? How do we get you into hundred percent of schools I'm with in. these concepts of trusted adults? All right. So let's hear what you have to that's say about what that. That's what me and, and the <laughs> incredible team uh, that I've recruited are working on. Um, so we are turning one trusted adult training into an e-course so that it is accessible um, financially and just, you know, I can't fly around to every school. Um, so the e-course is made for parents, guardians, foster parents, juvenile justice, educators, it really is this, you know, how to be a trusted adult, how to show up and earn the trust of young people and what to do when, once you've earned it, and how to stay boundaried to protect young people and to protect ourselves. That is the, the core of it. Um, it's a three-part uh, e-course. We also do in-person professional development Operation OTA, which I mentioned earlier, is this assessment tool. It's all packaged so you can do it yourself. I call it DIY PD. You get the slides, you get the quiz, you get everything to do it yourself. And then we have um, an advisory program for both middle school and high school, something called Ripple Journals, which is ask young people to dig in and reflect on their solo circle, who they are, their inner circle, peers, close friends, and their outer circle impact they want to have on the world. And we talk about it as, you know, growing personal skills for community contribution and leadership. And it's got those basics that I mentioned in the core throughout it. And it's also a boundaried curriculum so that educators don't get put in the place of being a therapist or a social worker or a mental health professional, right? That it's, it remains on this side of that chain link fence. I'm what not- I call the natural leaders of, of a school system. Yes. Yes, exactly. Well, I think because, and I I so agree with what you're doing, because I think we have to engage the entire system if we're going to create the kind of change 
that really can be so fundamental for children as they're growing to learn things in a different way. But I also want to say one other thing about the way you're describing the program is, you know, having been, you know, worked with schools for many years, sometimes programs come in and then they leave. And so then it's left. Okay. So now what do we do? And people get real excited about the idea and then, okay, it's gone. And who's going to be the leadership of carrying it forward. I like that you have created a system of continued ideas and support of children and the leaders in the school, because otherwise things tend to kind of dissipate. So it sounds like it was very, practitioner. (laughs) so, so, so I think that, I mean, I think I just want to emphasize that because there are many, many times the frustrations of paying a lot of money for something and then it doesn't really pan out into into systemic change. That's exactly. So it sounds like you've really considered that. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that, Brooklyn, because I think yeah. that's an important piece. Specifically with our middle school and high school advisory curriculum. So our advisory curriculum in high school is called Branch Out, and it's really um, tools and strategies, discussion prompts, activities for growing connection and community. And the high school one is amazing because it can be student-led. Yes. And that hits the youth needs. It allows practicing of leadership, public speaking, and it's read along. There's no prep, very few props. It's just download this thing and go. Um, again, I've been the educator who's been had all the initiatives and all the ideas and all the programs dropped in my lap. And it's been really exciting for a year and then gone exactly as you just described. And so I am dedicated to making sure that that is not the case with anything we create. Um, the beauty in it is Ripple Journal. There's four of them. And so it's fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Or your school can do one one year as a whole school, one the next year. You can choose, but it rotates so that at the end of the year, we don't say, that was awesome, but what are we going to do next year? <laughs> it's meant to cover you for that whole to year. Con- to, to continue. Yeah. I, I'm all about saving the summers of school administrators and school counselors who develop these things. Like, here it is. Your summer is back. You can enjoy and relax. Well, and I think that is something else that we've certainly heard is that sometimes when new ideas come in, the teachers are already, you know, like you said in the beginning, they can be so burnt out. Oh, you want me to do one more thing? Right. How could I do one more thing? But this sounds like it's so integrated in just like the activities of daily living of being a teacher and a student that it doesn't seem burdensome to me as you talk about it. I mean, can you address that a little bit? Because I'm sure you've encountered the same thing. Yes. A big mantra of ours is with, not for. So I'm not training adults to go in and do this thing for young people. We're actually giving them tools to do something with young people. So the idea of the journals is you actually sit down and you work through the journals together. And there's ideas for extension activities. But at the very basics, you just work through the journal together. At the high school level, we're trying to make it student-led so it's less of a burden on the educator, and it takes advantage of this great opportunity for young people to lead. So we've thought through all of that. We've talked to many educators. We've gotten tons of input um, from public, private, charter, you name it. Well, it sounds like it's been well thought out. And I have another question because I think this is so important for all of us in the world but is the whole issue of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I've seen where ideas have been created um, by a certain bucket of people that are working in middle and upper middle class um, areas. And they're not considering children that have less advantage because they're coming from a place of advantage. So I'm just wondering if you've considered those things and how you have been, have you included inclusivity in terms of people who are, advising you in how you're you're bringing this forward. Yes. So 
think tanks and groups. A big part of my doctoral study is bringing groups together to think through equity issue always. Um, at the core, like one pathway to disrupting inequitable systems is to provide mentorship to young people, right? It's to provide opportunity for youth voice. It's to practice appropriate and healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's to invest leadership skills in all young people. So we've had many readers of what we're working on and many reviewers, um, and not just within the United States, but internationally. So we're looking at all kinds of diversity in the way that we look at these products. Um, and the beauty, they're so flexible in their off the shelf that you can turn them into whatever you need them to be. We have groups using them as a peer mentorship program. We have groups using yeah. it as an actual leadership course. Uh, we have it as an advisory program. So what is really unique, I think, about what we're delivering is that at the core of it all is providing an opportunity for potential trusted adults and young people to work together on something positive to enhance and create that relationship, but while maintaining boundaries. Oh, that is, that's great. You know, so I just heard this term that I had never heard before, and it was actually um, attached to healthcare, but it was called, we have colonialism in healthcare in America. And then someone said to me, oh, we have colonialism in the education system. And it comes from not including everyone at the table, but it sounds like you've really considered that. Because I do, I do believe that some of the things that I've seen have not considered all children, but just some children. And that's not going to be leading us to a course that can be helpful. Have you heard, I always hear, excuse me, no decision about us without us. Yes. I love that. No decision about us without us. And I I need you to write that down. I'll get that tattooed on my arm and you're okay. (laughs) I think. I think you need to have your own handwriting with that there. Uh-huh. Um, but that it, it's very important to me, um, be, again, because I've been an educator and a practitioner and seen where curriculum or programs fail because they had only been reviewed by a small number of people who they would impact. Um, and, and we're also a small, nimble company that if we get feedback, we can shift and change and work to help you meet your needs. So um, well, I think you may only be a small, nimble company for a short period of time <laughs> if this idea continues. But yeah. l- let me ask you, I think, a really important question, um, because when we're talking about a trusted adult, which, you know, I just talked to you about my grandma, you talked about people in your life who'd been trusted adults. But what do they do? What does a trusted adult actually do that makes them trustworthy? So... Trust, again, is this sense of, and you talked about it, the, that I can be vulnerable. I feel safe to be vulnerable with you and that you won't take advantage of me. Like baseline, right? That is the oper- that's where I operate from. I also think in action, actionizing trust comes through actionizing care and empathy and compassion. And we work through the four C's. So they're cheerleaders, they're challengers, they're comforters, and they're coaches. And we work really hard with young people to introduce this concept that care and trust can come through these four modes. It can look like these things because it's easy to find it in comfort, right? When we're having a hard time and someone takes care of us, it is easier to build trust and to recognize the care of that person. It's pretty easy to see it in cheerleading, right? Someone's, you know, cheering us on and supporting us and wanting us to meet our, reach our goals and, and yes. find success. Yes. It's there. But when it comes to coaching and challenging, those are also actions of care and opportunities for trust building. Yes. Um, but with all of those, there's a boundary blur, 
there can be a tipping over of using a mode too far, going too far with comforting that I enable a young person or I go too far with challenging that I diminish or I go too far with coaching that I make their goal, you know, my goal, (laughs) that I care more as the coach (laughs) about their success than they do. Than they do. Yes. You see that happening. Yeah. And cheerleading can go all the way into, you know, toxic positivity where we're missing learning opportunities or I'm not seeing you for you because I'm like, tomorrow will be better. Let's just keep, let's just keep going. You got this. Just keep going. Um, so we, that's where we are centering a lot of our conversation is in helping adults figure out their natural leaning. Often as a parent, I go more to challenger (laughs) and how does my husband, my co-parent balance that? Um, I just, it's so much bigger than, you know, the whole good cop, bad cop we used to operate on. Um, but there's different modes and different levers we can pull in a moment with a young person, depending on where they're at. Well, I, I, I guess I was also just, I was thinking as you were talking about what it could be of also things when it hasn't been that way. And I was thinking about our new Supreme Court um, justice that will soon be sworn in, Kentanji um, um, Brown-Jackson. And the report that one of the school counselors told her not to apply to an Ivy League school because she wouldn't get in. And here she graduated magna cum laude yeah. from um, Harvard. I mean, she she was absolutely capable. And I know, so what do you do with kind of the naysayers? As you're coming in with this incredible positivity, yeah. do you get naysayers? And certainly you would want to affect that counselor saying, how dare you say that a young Black um, student that has a a desire to do something that you actually counsel her not to do it. I just, that kind of infuriates me when I hear these kinds of things. Absolutely. And I, I write about that in the, in a goal setting section of the book, because I had a student just like, well, not just like, because she, she definitely wanted to go to an Ivy league and all of her, I would never tell a student that they couldn't. Um, But most of her testing and scores would indicate that it was unlikely And I wanted to be honest and real with her, but I wanted to support her in whatever she wanted to try to do. And um, there's a real danger in setting goals and setting limits for young people. If I set a goal way up here for a young person, they might look at that and say, I'm not trying, no way. And if I set it too low, they look at that and say, that's all you think of me. And so it's dangerous. It's dangerous territory. I would never set a goal for a young person. I think our job is to listen to their excitements, their passion, their desire, their commitment and help them set a goal for themselves. And then we nudge them like an inch further, (laughs) a minute faster than where they thought they could go. I also think it's important that we sit down and write our own goals using the same model. We have a ripple model through the ripple journals. (laughs) Yes. Um, We set our own goals beside them and we actually ask the young people to hold us accountable to our goals. And then you learn a lot. If a young person's holding you to your goals, you learn how they want to be spoken to, how they are encouraged, how they are motivated, and you can turn that and use it back. So it's it's always back. For me, it's always back to the with, not for, with, not for. And typically when I'm running these trainings, there's certainly naysayers. I, I love the people in the back with their arms crossed who are like, trusted adult, what, you know, what is this? I just want to teach math or I just want to teach history. Because the people up front, they're already doing, they're like excited I'm there because they do this work and they feel validated and they feel energized by hearing like why it's so important. And my goal always is to get that person in the back to unfold their arms and to just open up their mind and idea and their compassion <laughs> to the idea that they they can make an extreme positive difference 
just by showing up, naming someone, knowing someone, caring for someone, living the ABCs, and then working to build on those basics mm -hmm. again. The belonging. Well, and as as you were talking, I was thinking about you know thinking about my teachers, and it was the ones I remember are the, are the ones that made me feel like I what I had value. Mm -hmm. And there were certainly some that made me feel like I didn't have value. And I remember them too. Yes. <laughs> um, but I, I think what, what we're talking about is really pivoting with discernment to how we, with intentionality, become that trusted adult. Yes. And role model that. And, and Brooklyn, I, I, I told you this would happen. We, we're almost to the end of the show. And Ooh. here we are together. No. So is there one, you know, just parting thought that you can say in a minute or less about what you want people to know about one trusted adult. We always finish by saying, be who you need and be who you needed. And that is an important phrase for me because when in doubt, when I'm not sure how to support someone, when I don't have the words or the perfect card or the gift, or I'm just not sure, take a breath and think, okay, who, who would I have needed in this situation? Who did I need when I was in that situation? Who did I need when I was younger? And most often it's a listener right? It's, it's quieter than we usually make it yes. out to be. Yes. It's um, less than we make it out to be, not more. And so I would encourage people to just pause and ask themselves, you know, who did I need and who do I need now? And, and show up in that way for other people. All right. That's just beautiful. And so the other thing, if people want to get a hold of you, can you tell us your website? So yes. how they can get a hold of you? You can find us at onetrustedadult.com. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you name it, we're out there. You're, you're social media up. All right. Yes. That's good. And they <laughs> the can way. find your book, I imagine on Amazon, One Trusted? On our website or on Amazon, yes. Okay. So One Trusted Adult, and I hope everybody goes out to buy it. And I want to thank you so much for the work that you're doing. You're really a healer in the world, Brooklyn, bringing these ideas um, and really empowering people of all ages to be that one trusted adult. And even if, and I love that, even if they didn't have it when they were children, they could, they can be that to someone else. So remember what else is true. I think Brooklyn's ideas are the very essence of what we've been talking about in this show for the last year and a half, what else is true. So until we meet again, um, I will see you next time. And this is Elaine Miller Karras signing out for Resiliency Within. Thank you again, Brooklyn. Much Thank gratitude you. to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.